Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Diplomatic uh, changes afoot on the Korean Peninsula as uh, North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un says that he will meet with President Donald Trump and the president uh, apparently agreeing to that meeting sometime uh, later this year, perhaps uh, in early summer. Here to help us understand what is going on is Toby Harshaw. He is our Bloomberg View editor for all things related to national security. And also uh, Jack Devine is the former acting director of the Central Intelligence Agency, a founding partner and the president of the security firm, the Arkin uh, Group. Uh, gentlemen, thank you very much uh, for being with us. Uh, Jack Devine, I want you to come in on this and just uh, give us your thoughts and reactions uh, to this news. Well, I think it's, uh, first of all, I'd hit the high note. I think it's a very positive development. I do think Kim Jong-un uh, blinked, but I want to say blinked. It's not like a gladiator that uh, kneels down and uh, begs for mercy. This is a blink. We should take advantage of it. I think it's going to be one of the more interesting uh, meetings of uh, heads of state that we have seen in uh, in current memory. I think it'll be two, the matador uh, and the bull trying to uh, size each other up, and uh, it's going to be a, a terribly important meeting. Toby, what are sort of both sides? Where are they in this meeting? Where are they lining up? What do they want to get? What will be considered a win? Well, I, I'm Jack will have to tell us which one's the bull and which one's the matador, I think. But uh, I, I think um, in terms of uh, what they hope to gain on the world stage, um, Kim is sort of the evident winner. I think a lot of people worry that uh, having an American president come and meet with him will sort of legitimize him as a as as a world leader, um, will legitimize his government. Um, I don't think that's the case. I don't think it's dumb to go and meet with him. I don't think it legitimizes him. But I think in his mind, it's extremely important. Um, there was a, a, a notable uh, North Korean propaganda film a few years ago um, that was called The Country I Saw, and it has this huge triumphant ending in which Bill Clinton comes to meet with with the Supreme Leader. And this was a so this is just a huge thing in what the Kims have built about themselves. Jack Devine, uh, to Toby's point, though, uh, what does it matter whether you know someone is a winner or a loser on a personal level or a prestige level if indeed they are able to reach some kind of de-escalation as it comes to the nuclear uh, threat that North Korea poses? Well, I think these things are often intertwined. Uh, first of all, going back to Tobin's uh, point, I um, I think we have to root that Donald Trump is the matador. Let's hope so. And I think the uh, uh, the reason why, I, I would just state that I think Donald Trump, um, and I think Kim Jong-un understands this, is actually having has a stronger hand, the stronger hand being the might, the economic and military might of the United States, which you know, we can't even say in the same breath that North Korea is in the, the same cate- category. So he has the matador sword here. Now, uh, having said that, uh, we still have a major problem in that North Korea is now a nuclear force. And if we look back over the arc of negotiations, and I've been 
proposing negotiations for as long as we've been speaking together here on Bloomberg. Um, but if you look over the long arc of dealing with North Korea, uh, they have a pattern, and it's a very uh, clear pattern. And when you're talking about deal-making, uh, Kim Jong-un considers himself a, a deal-maker. So this is why I think it's going to be a challenge uh, for the two of them. And right. the national interest and the personal interest are, are, um, are intertwined. You know, it's interesting, Jack. Uh, Toby was on our show uh, in the past few weeks, and he said something that was very compelling, which is that China is really the big wild card here. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, Jack, what role is China playing in this? Because right now we understand that South Korea is the one sort of negotiating this meeting. Uh, we understand North Korea's stance. Now we know President Trump's stance. Where's China? I think China is indeed a, a, a critical player, but it's not the critical player that it was years ago. There have been the distance between China and Korea is quite different than it was uh, years ago. So they do have economic points of pressure. I was, um, and on the show, I've been pessimistic that the Chinese were going to lean as heavily on North Korea as needed, needed to be the case. They've actually done more than I thought they would do. I, however, on this particular occasion, uh, I think going into these talks, we have to know what we really want to accomplish because yeah. I know what the North Koreans are going to want to accomplish. They've reached a plateau, so they want to buy. They want to now. Uh, my view is to say that they'll stop doing um, testing and stop doing uh, development of um, additional nuclear weapons. Whether they do or not, it will be the the, the test. Uh, and that in exchange, the one economic concessions. Now, right. you know, what, one of the things when you go back and look at the negotiations, they drag on for years. So I think if something's going to happen here, it has to happen on a different uh, timeline. I wouldn't give them only the most minimal concessions during uh, the period. And I think the goal, and I've been thinking about this uh, uh, more heavily in recent days, I do believe the administration's right. It has to be denuclearization, some effort moving in that direction, right. not just slowing down uh, the process. So going into this, he's got to hold that sword up high. Toby, come on in. Do you agree on this? And also, do you have a sense that China and Russia are playing in these negotiations at all? Um, I, I think that while Jack is very right, and we're going to look at this primarily right away as trading uh, sanction relief for concessions on the nuclear program, it's not as, as simple as even that. Um, we're, there are all sorts of issues in play. One is their intercontinental ballistic missile systems. Are we going to continue to let them develop that? There's their horrible human rights abuses. Can we normalize Relations with a country uh, that that is treats its people like this just so that we can get rid of a nuclear threat. Um, obviously, as Jack said, there's China, um, there's Russia, um, there is Japan, and there is South Korea. Um, we've got you know tens of thousands of troops there. There are there are just a, such a huge flood of issues that we cannot look at it as just being about their nukes. But, but Toby, let me just push back a little bit. I mean, this is a dynamic situation, and one can say that this is a positive positive situ positive element of this dynamic mm -hmm. situation right now. We don't know how it's going to play out, but give every chance for, for the support to make this happen. I couldn't agree more, Pim. This okay. is this is a great thing. I'm really glad. I hope it comes together. It's just, it's it's the first step in a big process. And Let me... Uh, please, are we yeah. too naive? I was just going to say uh, again, yes, uh, Tobin's, Tobin's right that 
there's going to be so much that goes into negotiations, so much expertise on the details. The problem is I'm really recommending that we not get bogged down on negotiations on negotiations on negotiations and find that we're giving them economic relief and nothing's really happening. And then they decide a couple of years from now when they're ready to do another uh, program to raise it to a new platform, we're looking at an empty bowl. So I think we have to be really tough and I think uh, I, I think this is the right moment uh, because I do think the, the Koreans are feeling uh, feeling the pain. Toby, Toby, uh, thank you so much, and uh, Jack, thank you so much. You both uh, really lent some fabulous insight to this very complicated uh, and evolving issue. Jack Devine, former acting director of the CIA and founding partner and president of the security firm the Arkin Group, and of course our own Toby Harshaw, Bloomberg View editor. Uh, always uh, fascinating to hear your insights. Uh, Pam, definitely an evolving issue. A lot of questions. One of the biggest right now is who will be preparing President Trump for this meeting and who will be going with him to it, uh, and not to mention where it will be held. Well, Jeffrey the Giraffe may be calling it a day. Noel Hebert is our Director of Credit Research for Bloomberg Intelligence. And Noel, I want you to come in on what's going on with Toys R Us, and is it likely that we can just um, say goodbye to Jeffrey? Well, it looks like uh, domestically, at least in the current form, in terms of the bricks-and-mortar stores, that does look like it's increasingly going to be the case. Uh, it didn't seem like that needed to be the case when they filed uh, last October or so, but given the fact that they went into bankruptcy without a plan and the way things kind of roll through retail and, and change very quickly and how contentious sort of the, the bankruptcy has been between all the different stakeholders, that is looking like where we're going as we speak. You know, Noel, can you just elaborate a little bit on exactly what happened here, why this fell apart? We are seeing uh, the uh, shares of toy makers fall today, so there are broader consequences to the concept mm -hmm. that Jeffrey the Giraffe will go uh, by the way of uh, retired uh, conception. So uh, what, what happened here? What broke down? Well, I think, you know, I guess to go back to, to part of what I just said, which is to say that they kind of went in without a plan. So when they filed, you know, unlike a lot of the deals, uh, you know, when you file, you kind of go with the plan so you kind of know how long you're going to be in and how long it might take to get out. Here, because they were kind of put into bankruptcy because you had a situation where the vendors basically just shut off uh, for them, they were forced to file prematurely so they could at least get through uh, the holiday. So nobody really anticipated them filing. And if you recollect, sort of the short-term bonds went from like, you know, the 90s into the 20s, like effectively overnight. So it was kind of a surprise filing. And then as they've gotten into bankruptcy, you had a very weak holiday uh, and, and you have a lot of operational dynamics that need to happen here for them to be solvent. But you also have a lot of competing interests uh, in terms of, you know, you have the property companies that are very interested in preserving the value of the real estate, whereas the operational side of it really needs to get changes to the lease terms in order to be profitable. So I think, you know, as the bankruptcy unfolded, just given the, the competitive nature of the different creditor groups, made it very difficult for them to sort of come to a consensus of what should a pro forma Toys R Us look like. And uh, Toys R Us, not the only retailer uh, facing some headwinds here. Uh, Claire's. Tell us about what's going mm. on with Claire's stores. So Claire's is 
it looks like it's going to be uh, better in the sense that you could have better in bankruptcy. Um, you know, it's going to be more along the lines of maybe what we saw with Quicksilver a couple of years ago or Jimboree a year ago, where creditors are kind of, it's going in with a plan, right? So you had another LBO story, severely overlevered, but you have a company that generates decent cash flow, has a decent little business, and creditors sort of have a plan of what this thing should look like on the other side. So this one, at least, you know, from the looks of it right now, probably is, you know, it could go in, maybe be in bankruptcy for six months, get quickly turned around, they hand the keys over to the creditors, uh, and then it emerges on the other side, maybe a little bit smaller than what it is right now, but still a functioning operation. Noel, uh, who's next on this retail death watch? <laughs> well, uh, how long is the list? Uh, I don't know. So, you tell me. How long is yeah. it? So, well, I mean, so I guess, you know, one of the companies that had been on the list that isn't anymore would have been Neiman Marcus, right? So they had a, a reasonably good quarter that they reported today. Uh, Bonton's already gone in. Sears is, is you know, uh, the living dead of sorts. Um, they're... <laughs> They're, you know, they're definitely there, right? I mean, liquidity-wise, operational-wise, they're there. I think, um, you know, you also have names like J. Crew, but I think J. Crew's got liquidity to navigate the intermediate term. So if you just had to pick one out of, out of the group, I, I think Sears is the one that obviously faces the, you know, a very, very weak operating climate, and they're running out of assets to sell to sort of stave off that next stage. Um, so, so I would think they're. They're probably at the front of the queue at this point. Noel Hebert, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Noel Hebert is Director of Credit Research for Bloomberg Intelligence, the walking dead of retailers. Just in, Lloyd Blankfein is preparing to step down as Goldman Sachs chief executive as soon as the end of the year. This, according to The Wall Street Journal, just crossing moments ago to get some perspective on what this would mean for the bank. I want to bring in Michael Moore, U.S. finance team leader. Michael, uh, what's your reaction to this and uh, who is the likely successor to Lloyd Blankfein? Sure. I, I think um, not hugely shocking. Uh, you know, Lloyd's um, exit has been uh, kind of forecast for a few years now. And, and if this is indeed the year, uh, it would make some sense. He's uh, been in the top job for a dozen years now. And uh, at the end of 2016, they named two uh, co-presidents uh, below him, Harvey Schwartz and David Solomon. Uh, those are seen as the two likely successors. And now they've had um, a little more than a year in those um, top jobs, kind of overseeing the firm with Lloyd. Uh, so I think um, this would be seen as a fairly, um, you know, smooth handoff yeah. uh, to one of them. Although, Michael, this uh, does raise some questions about the timing of this, because Goldman Sachs has had some pretty big plans about reviving its bond trading unit, has been pretty aggressive with consumer lending through its Marcus platform that it started a couple of years ago. Uh, do you have any insights on why now? Um, you know, I think, um, you know, I think as you mentioned, they are kind of having this pivot, um, they, uh, uh, into more of the consumer business, the trading business has struggled, but if they, you see the return of volatility this year, that may help them kind of get on firmer footing in their main business. Um, so, um, 
that that could be seen as a time to to step down. Michael, just hang on, because I want to bring in Tad Ravel. He is the chief investment officer for TCW, based in Los Angeles, uh, helping to manage more than $180 billion. Uh, Tad, thanks very much for being with us. What are your, what's your reaction to this uh, breaking news that uh, we might see uh, Lloyd Blankfein step down as the head of Goldman Sachs by the end of the year? Uh, well, um, I don't think that it is all that surprising in light of the naming of the two uh, co um uh, uh, co-presidents okay. that occurred a year or so ago. Um, at a personal level, I've met uh, Lloyd in a uh, in a smaller, intimate type of setting. Always found him to be very amiable, very humble. Um, there's probably some background about him actually that many of the listeners might not be aware of. His father was a was a postman, and he initially, uh, uh, as he describes it, sort of bumbled into uh, his role at uh, Goldman Sachs by virtue of the fact that he had. He had worked uh, in a commodities firm um, sometime prior, but actually started his career as, a, as an attorney. But um, he's had a really good run, and he's obviously built a uh, incredible powerhouse of, a, of an operation. Well, he, uh, as you mentioned, uh, he has spent 36 years uh, at uh, Goldman Sachs, and uh, as you mentioned uh, previously, a gold uh, salesman in, in the commodity division, then ran the firm's uh, trading business, named Chief Executive, uh, in 2006 when uh, Hank Paulson uh, became the Treasury Secretary. Yes, exa- exactly so. Ted, I'm wondering your perspective on sort of the the fixed income trading environment since Goldman Sachs was one of the leaders, has been one of the leaders in that area and has actually doubled down on their debt trading unit, even as revenues have flagged over the years on a year over year basis. I'm wondering going forward, do you think that we are heading into a better environment for trading revenues and that Goldman Sachs stands to benefit from that? Or do you think that uh, we're going to be in a very different environment due to electronic and other kinds of streamlining? Well, I think that uh, in the recent past, the issue with respect to uh, poor trading revenues across the uh, entirety of the industry has really been reflective of two, uh, two dynamics. One has been the incredibly low level of volatility uh, that has persisted in financial markets, the low for longer, and the engineering of this low volatility on the part of the central banks, and the Dodd-Frank legislation that essentially drove uh, large financial firms more or less out of the role of proprietary trading and have um, they have been forced to over the course of this cycle to agent risk but not to principal risk and as a consequence of these two dynamics we've had a very low level of transaction volumes for a long time going forward I think that we can see several things happening there seems to be some movement in the direction of relaxation of the financial regulations, particularly the Volcker rule, which ought to help. Um, secondly, we are seem to be transitioning to a higher volatility type of environment. And the, um, the thrust uh, as it relates to electronic trading, that's a process that's been around for a very long period of time. And the Wall Street firms have demonstrated almost an endless ability to adapt and be inventive and to make money as long as there's actually an opportunity for them to do that. Ted, uh, tell us your thoughts right now on investing in fixed income. Do you think we're going to get a repricing of corporate bonds? Are there things that are worth buying right now? Well, we've been thinking that there ought to have been a repricing of corporate bonds 
for quite some time. Um, we, we continue to exist in this environment in which risk appetites are, in our opinion, exuberantly large. Um, the, when you examine, for instance, the corporate asset class, several of your takeaways will be the uh, observation of very high levels of leverage. So when you look at the total stock of debt, for instance, on the part of investment-grade companies, and look at the relationship between that totality of debt as compared with their actual earnings, what one will take away is that you are at the highest levels of leverage of debt to EBITDA since at least uh, 2002. You are above where we were back in 2007. If you want to look at it through other metrics, for instance, the amount of compensation that the investor earns per turn of leverage on the underlying business, you come away with the same observation. If you look at what's happening in the M&A market, you can see that private equity has been pushing the envelope in terms of looking for um, uh, loose, looseness in terms of covenant quality, yeah. protections for the investor, and obviously discretion for the equity sponsor. So the list kind of goes on and on. The, there are plenty of yellow flags and maybe the beginning of some red flags that um, have been out there for some time. So you're supposed to be, I think, quite cautious about moving into the more cyclically exposed areas of the uh, corporate uh, as uh, um, asset class, and particularly those areas that also evince financial leverage as well. All right. Just real quick, which asset class and fixed income are you most bullish on? Well, I don't know that there's any asset class out there, actually, that you should be uh, actually bullish on. I think that where, where you're supposed to focus your attention is to be disciplined, yeah. stay short-term in terms of maturity, and focus on higher quality type of uh, asset classes, um, the, the, the kind that we yeah. would describe as bendable and not breakable. Tad Ravel, Chief Investment Officer at TCW, focused on fixed income. TCW managing about $180 billion. Just to reiterate, uh, Goldman Sachs Chief Executive Lloyd Blankfein preparing to step down uh, as soon as later this year capping 12 years at the helm of one of the biggest U.S. banks. Indeed. Well, it might not be that quick for Cigna to acquire Express Scripts as it has proposed. Uh, evidently, antitrust regulators are I'm very interested in seeing what this deal would actually look like. Here to join us is Max Neeson, biotech pharma and healthcare columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly. Uh, Max, let's just start with how realistic is it that this deal is going to go through? Uh, you know, I, I think it has a pretty decent shot, although it'll be the kind of one of the first real big tests of what antitrust looks like under the Trump administration. Um, you know, it's it's not a horizontal consolidation, really. Uh, it's, you know, an insurer teaming up with the PBM. Cigna has a PBM. Pharmacy benefit manager. A pharmacy manager. benefit manager, but a relatively small one. Uh, I guess the question is, if you are, you're concentrating too much general healthcare market power uh, in the hands of just a few companies, especially when you add in the fact that this will be the second of two very large insurer PBM mergers, uh, the first being Aetna and CVS. So the fact that both of these are arriving at the same time uh, might increase the level of scrutiny. From an in industry point of view, uh, Max, how do PBMs make money? How do physician uh, pharmacy benefit management companies uh, earn their keep? 
There, there are a couple different ways. Um, the first is that they take a cut of the rebates that they negotiate uh, on behalf of their clients. So, exa for example, if you have two diabetes drugs, you pick one of them because they give you a bigger discount. They take a slice of that discount and send the rest on to their client. Um, they also take a, a piece of the spread between the manufacturer's price and, and what a pharmacy pays. And uh, they also collect fees for, for certain services um, that they provide for clients, which is basically trying to manage drug spend in other ways. So if you use their preferred drug list, you pay a higher fee, for example. So it's all those things. So the the theory here, uh, at least this is what's being proposed to clients, is that mergers of this type uh, will lead to Cigna, for example, passing along any savings to customers. You're laughing, I see. Um, but, you know, could that be true? I mean, could they have a certain negotiating power to get down pricing and strip out any sort of uh, excess roles that uh, get sort of uh, lost in the shuffle and make it cheaper? You know, at least theoretically, anytime that you add scale, um, and in this case, you have, you know, a single company managing kind of the totality of a person's medical care, uh, both, you know, the, the medical part, which the insurer does, and the drug benefit. So um, theoretically, now that you don't have two different companies taking a slice of that profit, uh, perhaps you'll see some savings and more passed on uh, to the customer, to clients, or to consumers. But um, I, I think kind of the, the arc of the healthcare universe is generally towards more inflation and uh, taking the pretty close to the same amount. Uh, we'll see. Maybe I'm just a bit of a skeptic, but uh, I, I don't imagine that, that there will be a, a tremendous amount of, of savings in aggregate. Okay, let's play devil's advocate. If there are savings to be had, they have to come from someone or I don't mean a person, but some company or some industry group that is currently enjoying that money. Who is going to get hurt by this? Uh, probably drug makers on one side and then potentially uh, people who contract with insurers and PBMs on the other, because there's even potentially less competition now. You have just a couple of very large vendors. And, um, you know, while they'll certainly be price competitive with each other in areas where they intersect, um, when there are fewer, there's less of that. So, lar so large corporations, for example, that use a pharmacy benefit manager in order to manage part of the healthcare costs of their workforce. Uh, potentially, and and that's why you see, you know, the the Amazon, Berkshire, J.P. Morgan thing, um, them taking to, attempting to take a little bit of that power back uh, by running some of these things themselves instead of contracting out to to one of these new giant companies. You know, one question that I have: a lot of people say there's going to be plenty more consolidation in the healthcare space. Uh, the consolidations that we have seen or the proposed ones are somewhat different in each case. CVS, for example, and Aetna, that is a healthcare company and a drugstore operator, and then here you have a PBM, a pharmacy benefit manager, getting acquired uh, by Cigna, a healthcare company. What's the optimal combination for cost savings? Um, you know, I, I think the one that I would point to is, is having the most potential, and we'll see if this is actually realized uh, because I'm talking about CVS Aetna, because they are raising so much debt that's going to constrain their ability to actually spend to, to get the most out of it. But since they're combining, um, you know, an, an insurer, uh, CVS also owns the largest pharmacy benefit manager uh, in the country and the drugstore, the physical location where they have clinics, um, they control kind of the potentially broadest swath of, of healthcare. And how important is it that they're actually getting data 
on the health of their clients in real time as they go to clinics and managing their drugs? I mean, is that sort of the understated uh, benefit as well? Yeah, I think that's hugely important. I mean, the, the more data that you have, the more effectively you can design plans and price them and interventions. Um, you know, all of these things can can contribute to controlling costs over time. Uh, we'll see if that actually, you know, manifests as uh, you know, cost savings to the healthcare system as opposed to cost savings for CVS and, and better margin. But um, it, there's definitely potential for that. I want to thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Max Neeson, as always, uh, illuminating and thoughtful. Uh, Max Neeson is our Bloomberg gadfly columnist for all things related to uh, healthcare. And of course, this is a topic uh, that is of uh, interest not only to people who access the healthcare system, but to those uh, who are investing in it. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.